If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts. We're in a new series to looking at what happened in the early church, the church on fire, the church of fire. Beyond our wildest anticipation, have you ever had a wild anticipation about something? What would make 11 people who are at a beach cottage, staying there on the beach, who have been having a lot of rain, but also a lot of fun, what would make 11 family members get up at 5.45 a.m. and go down to the beach on their last day when they could sleep in? Insanity. I heard that. <laughs> Actually, there was a, uh, it was anticipation. Because there was a satellite that was to be launched, and we were staying this summer in Florida about two and a half, three miles from the, the launch pads where the space shuttle and where so many of the space launches have taken off, and we knew that they were going to do a Delta IV Heavy, which is quite the rocket, and I'd never seen a rocket launch, and some of the grandkids were excited, and some of the sons and daughters and son-in-laws were excited, and so 11 of us got up at 545. You say, Pastor, weren't there 13? We're not going to talk about the two that didn't get up. One of them was a baby, and one of them was somebody else. But 11 of us trundled down at 11.45 to the beach thinking we would be the only ones there. And when we got to the beach, I looked up the beach and I looked down the beach and there were all of the people standing looking the same direction as far as you could see down the beach and up the beach. Hundreds, if not thousands of people standing on the beach looking at the spot waiting for the launch. It was to take off just right after 6 o'clock. And we had our cell phones, our smartphones, and they, we, had, we were tuned to NASA, and they were giving us a countdown, and you could hear up and down the beach, 10, 9, 8, and everybody's eyes got big, and we were watching, 4, 3, 2, launch has been on hold. <laughs> we went and had breakfast. After they, after they delayed it three times, we went and had breakfast. And we, were, we kept the TV there on there at the, the beach cottage, and they said, hey, the launch is back on. And we all ran back down the beach, and most of the people had left. It was 9, 14 a.m., 10, 9, and they went down 3, 2, 1. And all of a sudden, you couldn't see it as much as you could hear this incredible roar. Found out later that they didn't do the no normal noise suppression that they have done with the space shuttle launches for five minutes, it was so loud, it literally, you could feel the vibration in your chest two and a half, three miles away. You could literally feel the ground. It felt like shaking under your feet as this thing took off. And long after it was out of sight, you could still hear this roar of this rocket. It was beyond my wildest anticipation. And I'm here to tell you that was nothing compared to the launch of the church that Jesus had been preparing for three years, literally for all eternity past, the launch of the church that happened in Acts chapter 2. Beyond anyone's wildest anticipation. And all of our faces that morning literally were lit up by the rocket went, once it jumped off the pad and, and the sun was there and, and it was like our faces glowed. Well, that happened in the church too. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we who with unveiled face, that means no suntan lotion. We who with unveiled face all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 
And we're so afraid of talking about the Holy Spirit, but I want to talk about God the Holy Spirit and what He does in our life today. What God plans on doing in and through us is beyond our wildest anticipation. Go to to Acts chapter 2. It's a long chapter. I'm not going to read every verse. But we're going to start in in, uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Can we anticipate how God works? How does God work? Well, He works in different ways and different times. But look at this. Follow along with me. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. It says, When the day of Pentecost came, Pente means 50 or 5 or 50, Uh, Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover, it's always on a Monday. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. If you remember, they were together praying in the upper room. I believe it was the same upper room where they had that communion. Suddenly, verse 2, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them, note that, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Don't miss that. Verse 7, utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of uh, of us hears them in his own native language? Then he lists all 15 regions that they came from. Pick it up in verse 11, the, the last part of it. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues or languages. Once again, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. It's a bunch of drunk disciples is what it is. Look at verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, Fellow Jews and all of, all you, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I want to stop there for just a minute. Can we anticipate how God works? I think so many times we, we miss how God is working. And God is sending some real powerful messages in this, cha- in this chapter, in this passage, that we overlook, that we miss. And I want to look at just three of them. Number one, why did God use the sound of wind? Why was wind one of the symbols? Why is that such a big deal? When you look at this, it says that they were all together in the upper room, 120 or so of them, and you notice all of them got the Holy Spirit, not just a few of them. They were all baptized. It was the promise of the baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised in Acts chapter 1, verse 5. We talked about it last week. And the Holy Spirit was, bab- was, was, the Holy Spirit was baptizing them just as he'd promised. They'd been there 10 days After 40 days, Jesus is taken from their sight. For 10 days, they've been waiting, and they've been anticipating. Don't you hate it 10 days before Christmas? Don't you hate it 10 days before a a big wedding, maybe of a family member, and there's all this anticipation and and all that going on? Where's Jim and Bree? Yeah, No anticipation there going on, right? 
All this anticipation for these things, and that's what was happening with them. And they had no clear concept of what was going to happen. If you understand this, they're in this room waiting. The Lord says the Holy Spirit's going to baptize, but that had never happened before. It's the only time in history. I, I think of new parents. We have, from time to time, we have the baby dedication coming up August 5th. We have new parents. And when it's their first child, I'm always amused. I try not to smile and laugh at them, but I chuckle with them because they say things like, Oh, we're all prepared. We've read a book. We've been to a class. We've talked to our doctor. And I just say, "Uh uh-huh. And usually about four or five months after that first child arrives, you see the woman coming in, and her hair isn't as nicely done as it used to be. And the makeup sometimes is not quite the same. And the guy comes in, and he's got bloodshot eyes. That's from his wife poking him, saying, it's your turn. Get up with him, with her, it. It's a whole new world. Anticipation is not the same as what happens. And that's exactly what happens here, because their anticipation is that that the Lord was going to do something, and they had no idea that it would involve a win. But there's some clues. In Ezekiel's vision, in the Old Testament, there's, you remember the them bones, them bones, them dry bones? Do you remember that vision, the, the dry bones? This whole valley of dry bones, the ankle bones connected to the, you know, there was a whole song about that. That was about the dry bones, and he had this vision of the dry bones. And it's specific to Israel's restoration, but it's also indicative. It's, it's a powerful illustration of what God's breath can do because there it, it, there's the word used, God's breath, or the Hebrew word is the same word for wind, and it's ruach, and it has this guttural sound at the end, ruach. And this God's, God's breath, God's wind, this wind comes over the dry bones. Look at what it says in Ezekiel chapter uh, what is that? 37, 9 and 10. Prophesy to the breath, to the rock. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood on their feet, a vast army. And when the wind comes in, it's a, it's a symbol of life. It's a symbol that God will grant life to that which is dead. And those disciples who had been dead before Jesus Christ came into their life had the Holy Spirit enter them as a sign of life. Well, we should know that. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says that God formed man from the dust of the earth and he breathed his ruach, his breath into him, the breath of life. And God saw what was going to be the church, and he saw all of their work and their anticipation and their waiting, and he said, oh, they've got all of the form, they've got the body together, but they need the the breath of life. And he breathed into them. In John chapter 3, when Jesus is speaking to, to Nicodemus, Nicodemus came and he was probably one of the most educated men, one of the most godly men, one of the most spiritual men in Israel at the time, and he came, he was a teacher, and Jesus says, you as a teacher, don't you understand the rock? And I think he probably said it in Hebrew rather than in Greek or in Aramaic. He says, the rock, the the wind blows, God's breath blows where it wants, and it's an illustration of the work of the Holy Spirit. And he said, you must be born again. On the hottest day, don't you want just a little breeze? 
On the hottest day, I, I was at Walmart yesterday. You should have seen the fans going off the shelves. People who maybe had a broken air conditioner or they just couldn't get enough breeze and, and they had fans out there, 1588 and 2988. And I saw one guy, he, was, he said, well, this one's for the bedroom and this one's for the living room. And he was loading them up. The wind was not felt here, but heard. Have you ever been in the Midwest and, and heard a, a tornado? They say it's like a freight train that comes through when this tornado comes through. I, I grew up in Kansas City. One time we were on the third floor of the, or second floor of this church looking out at the window, had the window open, and I said, hey, there's a tornado right over there. And my friend said, yeah, isn't that cool? Hey, look, it's coming our way. And I looked at him, and he looked at me, and he said, basement? And I said, yeah. And you could hear it. Even though the tornado did not hit us, it knocked the power lines down across the street. The, the power lines literally came over the cars that had been sitting right down in front of that window where we were. And even in the basement, we heard the sound. We just came back from Florida. And a couple of days, we were out on the beach, and the band of, of, of uh, the storm, this hurricane, would come over, and it would come over us, and it was, by that time, it's just a tropical storm. It wasn't even a hurricane anymore. And the band would go, and we'd say, beach, we got 20 minutes before the next band goes. And we'd go down there, and we would be playing in the water and being on the beach, and all of a sudden, the wind would come up, and you were getting sandblasted. And you felt the effects of the wind. And the Lord says, do you understand the power you understand the life that I want to give you? Number two, why did God use the appearance of fire? It says that there, it seemed like there were tongues, the appearances as if tongues of fire. Little, little fires were coming on each one of them. And the Israelites associated fire with God from the, from the very beginning because Moses came to this burning bush. The bush was burning and yet it was not consumed. And who was in the fire? God was in the fire. And when God said to Israel, listen, I'm going to be with you, he gave them a pillar of cloud in the day. And what was, was it he gave them at night? He gave them a, a pillar of fire that literally hovered over the tabernacle so that they could see that God's presence was there. And when Moses went up to get the law, it, it, it says literally, look at what it says, Exodus 24, 17, to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. It looked like the whole top of the mountain not only was in storm, but it was this consuming fire was consuming the top of the mountain. John Phillips has written a book called Exploring Acts. He does, I think, the best job of talking about the analogy of fire. This is what he says. The fire was a symbol of the Spirit. Fire begins with a small flame, but it spreads. True? Is that a true story? Our kids have told us of times when they were playing with fire, when we didn't know they were with the, the neighborhood kids. And one time we came home, and the neighborhood kids, uh, his little, uh, he had a little fort in the back, and it was burned up. And I said to Chris, what happened? He says, we have no idea how that happened, Dad. It was years later, he said, we were just burning, you know, just burning matches and playing with fireworks, and all of a sudden a bottle rocket went into the fort, and the next thing we knew, the fort was on fire, and we had hoses, and our hose from our house, and his hose from his house, and we didn't know any of this. The fire will spread. It burns. There's a, a judgment element associated with fire. The lost will spend eternity in a lake of fire. It purges. In 1066, London was in the grip of black death. This, this epidemic had just absolutely destroyed the city. But in 1067, a great fire came through, and it literally burned most of the section of London where it was, and the black death was gone. 
because it killed the bacteria, it purged it. It illuminates. For how many centuries fire has, has been man's only source of artificial light? It enabled men to work late into the night and, and, and to walk in an otherwise dark world. Fire warms. We don't need warming today. But it enables men to penetrate hostile regions where snow and ice reign. It smolders. Men can resist and quench ordinary fire. But the Holy Spirit fire they can never put out. It will burn on quietly in the heart of some believer and will begin to spread again. Fire. As a second analogy, what does it do? It it spreads, it purges, it illuminates, it warms. We live in an area that's prone to to wildfires. We know what happens when somebody just carelessly throws a cigarette out of a a car, or maybe they're mowing without the, 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 the right stuff, and they hit a rock, and that spark starts a fire. We know what happens in our in our world. And the Lord says, Do you understand? It's as if each of you is a small flame. It's as if you have a flame that you could go out and start a fire for me. And Paul says to Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God. It's already there. Fan it into flame. We were down at the the beach and we wanted to cook out. And we bought charcoal. Good. We had matches. Good. The charcoal was not one of the self-light charcoals. Bad. And our son, Chris, had one of those chimney things, but he hadn't brought it yet. And we didn't have any lighter that I knew of. And so I was piling the charcoal on there, and I was taking wood chips, and I was taking anything I could find on the beach, and I was putting it under the charcoal, and I was trying to light it the old-fashioned way. You know how hard that is to do? That's extremely hard to do. When I got done, Kathy said, oh, there's lighter in, in the kitchen up there. And there's lighter over at this other place, and there's, it turns out there's three things of lighter. And I'm in there going, seems like for hours to try to get this fire going. And the Lord says, how many times do I have to go to try to, to get you to burn brightly? Why does the, the, God use the appearance of fire? Number three, why did God use the gift uh, of languages? Of all the things he could use, this topic has, has caused so much controversy in the church. By the way, there's only three references to speaking in tongues in the whole book of Acts. There's only three references in all of Acts. And the only other time it's mentioned is in 1 Corinthians because it was flagrantly abused by the church. So those of you that, that feel like, well, tongues is all what it's about, let's find out for sure. What does the Bible say? What were these tongues? Look at verse 6 again. We just ran through this. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And it repeats it in verse 8 because we're too slow to get it the first time. It says, we all heard this in our own tongue, in our own language. Tony and May are here. They're missionaries. When they go to the, to the nation where they're serving right now, and again, we're not going to mention the nation because sometimes it's not really good to, to let people know where they're serving, but they go to a place where they have to speak in a different language. If they came and spoke in English, would you have much reception where, you're, where you are? No. They need to be able to speak in different languages. And that's exactly what happened because there are 15 different regions represented, people from different areas that may not have known the same language, and this language came in. Literally, the Greek says in verse 8 that it was the idia dialecto. That's what the Greek says. It was the idia in our own language, the idia dialecto. We get two words from that, idiom and dialect. 
using all of the same vernacular, all of the idioms that we use. Uh, we, we use those terms all the time because we use words that don't mean a lot in other languages because they're idioms. They're just common things that we use. I came from Texas, and we used to say, instead of this saying, this wasn't the first time, we would say, this is not my first rodeo. Now, the truth is, I've never been in a rodeo. But you know what I'm talking about when I say it's not my first rodeo. This is not the first time I've tried this. We use idioms, and he says, we understand in our idioms and in our dialect. Because I also had a mother from the South, and she used the word y'all. And some of you try to do it and say, you say you all. No, I don't say you all. If you say you all, you're not from the south. If you're in the south, you say y'all. If you're from the north and try to make fun of somebody from the south, you say you all. If you're from New Jersey, you say yous, guys. (laughs) And it's a dialect. And the Lord says, I gave them this so they could communicate clearly. John Stott says, the gift of languages... Not the gift of tongues, but the gift of languages was not intended to make the disciples feel good. It was not intended to make the disciples feel superior or personally edified. It made the disciples effective, powerful witnesses. The Feast of Pentecost celebrated, was celebrating the first fruit of harvest. And it was in the middle of the summer. It was when more people came probably than any other time, maybe other than Passover. It was the end of the Sabbath. It was the beginning of a new day. And the Lord wanted to be completely clear about this. And he wanted to bring people from every nation, from every ethnic background, from every language, and he wanted to bring them together. The language, the same language that divided us at the Tower of Babel because everyone spoke the same language and it says God confused their language and they scattered over all the earth. On the day of Pentecost, it's the beginning of the reversal of that and we're all going to come back and we're going to speak the same language. I don't believe it's going to be English. My grandmother, who was born in Germany, told me that God spoke German. He had to translate to English. That's why she always prayed in German. She always read her German Bible. I don't know what language we're going to speak, but we're going to speak God's language someday. And we'll all speak one language. And he began to bring the church together in this unity, in this communication. But there's one other thing that he did. He, he authenticated what was going on there. Think about that. He says, these, these people are Galileans. These, these people are country bumpkins. These people are hill people. I grew up again in Kansas City, but I was born in Knoxville, Tennessee. When we went back to see Tennessee, we knew there were people from Chattanooga and from Knoxville and from Nashville. Those were the city people. And then we also went sometimes and we saw the Appalachian people. These were the country bumpkins. These were the people that were the hill people, the mountain people. They didn't have running water. They didn't have electricity. They didn't have phones. Their kids many times didn't have shoes. They were looked down on. When you went to Chattanooga and they talked about somebody came from the hills, they were looking down their nose at that person. They were saying, they're not as good as we are. I understand what they're saying, you Galileans. Because they couldn't, you know, that ruach, that I, the little guttural part at the end? The Galileans couldn't do that. They didn't do the guttural language very well, and so they sounded like hicks trying to speak, which I'm sure if somebody knew Hebrew and I'm saying it, that's exactly what you're sounding like. But God transcended the racial and the national and the linguistic barriers, and he authenticated that these were the real guys. It's a sign gift. It's an authenticating gift. Now, can I point out one other thing? In the midst of 1 Corinthians, when Paul is saying there's been an abuse in this, in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, look at what he wrote. Love never fails. It's eternal. 
But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are languages, the same word that's used in Acts chapter 2, where there are languages or tongues, they will be still. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. It's in the midst of this discussion saying you've abused it in chapter 12. You're going to abuse it some more in chapter 14. These are some rules, some, some things that will help you keep from abusing it too much. And the middle it says, this is not that important. In fact, the last verse of chapter 12 in 1 Corinthians 12, 31 says, desire the greater gifts. By inference, it means that the gift of tongues is one of the lesser gifts. If you're going to desire to have a spiritual gift, ask for something other than speaking in tongues. God says, I'm going to use this wind, this power, this life. God says, I'm going to use this fire that spreads, that purges, that illuminates, that warms. God says, I'm going to use this gift of languages that communicates, that unifies, that authenticates, because I'm going to build my church. And Peter says, don't you get it? Even Joel, the prophet Joel, he knew it was coming. Look at the last half of the chapter and we'll finish. Do we anticipate how God wants us to witness? Because if we finally get what God was doing in the church to bring life, to launch this thing that he'd been preparing for, not only the three years of Christ's ministry, but literally from the time of Adam and Eve, then we're going to also anticipate how God wants us to witness what we're supposed to do. Go to Acts chapter 2. Look at verse 22 through 24. Men of Israel, Peter's still speaking, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Then he quotes from Psalm 116. Look at verse 31. Look at verse 31. Peter's continuing still. This is his message. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that's David, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He's saying, listen, David wasn't eternal. And yet David is talking about one of his children is going to be his Lord. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus. Now get this whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, even in Redding, California. Okay, that's not in there, but it could be. The promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. I could read on to the end of the chapter and I'd love to, but for time I won't. Three things that, about what we're supposed to do. Number one, be clear. 
Peter stood up that day. They asked a question. He answered the question. It's not a time not to be clear. And Peter did not mince words. In verse 23, he says, you put Jesus to death. We're not to be deliberately offensive, but we're called to overcome evil. Did you get that? It's not our job to go out and be offensive. We have plenty of offensive Christians already. We don't have to be deliberately offensive. It is our job to overcome evil with good. That's what Romans chapter 12, verse 21 says. Look at what it says. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with politics. Is that what it says? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with pointing out everybody else's evil. Is that what it says? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Oh, we don't get the second part of that. Uh, Again, Mark Buchanan, I, I love Mark, and this is what he says about this. This is not the age for being unclear. The age we live in is more confused than ever. This is not the moment to become vague and apologetic about truth, both doctrinal and ethical, we've received once for all. Our age may not need heavy-handed dogmatism, but our age, the world we live in today, is desperate for steady-handed clarity. This is a growing need to na- there is a growing need to name truly accurately, faithfully, the evil that is all around, and to call insistently, patiently, lovingly men and women to a more excellent way. He goes on, all the same naming evil is at most and at best half our job. In fact, if all we do is name evil, we won't even be doing half our job. We'll be undoing it as much as doing it. Naming evil, period, is a posture that church in certain places and during, during certain eras has perfected. It's too easy to become a connoisseur of wrongdoing. Professional denunciators, or denouncers, I'm sorry, professional denouncers. When the church in mass adopts this position, it's not our finest hour. We've denounced abortion, but not always shown hospitality to single mothers in our midst. We sign petitions against same-sex marriages, but don't love our wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We speak publicly against pornography, but privately indulge in it. By itself, naming evil is as close to useless as an activity gets. Folks, there are people out there today, they're picketing at funerals. And they're, denunci- they're, they're denouncing evil and, and they're making this, this time when they get up and they, they tell us what they're against. The world doesn't need more of that. The world needs Christians who will say what evil is but do more. The other half of our job, Mark Buchanan goes on to say, is to overcome evil. The evil we've dared to name with deep, enduring good. This is a church's real calling. This is the deeper and harder half of our job. This is what makes the church different from everything else in the world or is supposed to. We open ourselves to the Holy Spirit's power and creativity to discover a third way between revenge and capitulation, between attacking evil and succumbing to it. The third way is overcoming evil. It's naming and facing evil head on and defeating it, not with petitions or lawsuits, not with guns and tanks, but with goodness, with love. What are we supposed to do? Here's what we're supposed to do. We're called to meet cowardice with courage. We're supposed to meet anger with gentleness. We're supposed to meet bitterness with tenderness, stinginess with generosity, 
Every time we see evil, we can be clear. And the clearest thing that we can do ever as believers, the clearest thing that we can do is to show how God loves. Be clear. By the way, Peter's message that day went long. In verse 40 it says, with many other words he warned and pleaded with them. So it went long, but he was still concise. And, And when Peter's all said and done, they got it. One of the times when I went to a camp, they did a, a skit with a bandana and a banana. Has anybody ever seen that? This guy walks up, and on the table in front of him is a bandana and a banana. And he's supposed to be a little slow. And the guy says, I can teach you how to fold a bandana without even looking. So they blindfold the guy who's giving instructions, and he says, pick up the bandana. You, you know what a bandana is? It's a big handkerchief. Well, the guy that's looking at the table sees a bandana and a banana, and he picks up the banana instead of the bandana. And the guy says, fold it in half. And he looks at the banana, and he says, this is going to make a mess. He says, no, it'll be perfectly fine. So he says, so he folds the banana in half and squishes it. He says, now fold it in half again. And it goes on with all of these illustrations. By the time he's done, there's this gooey mess of a banana in the guy's hand. And sometimes I think when we're giving instructions to the world, all we do is make a gooey mess because we're not clear. Be clear. Number two, point others to Christ. Peter begins and ends his message with Jesus. He says that Jesus is a recognizable Messiah. He says that there were 36 recorded miracles that authenticated who Jesus was, that he was who he said he was. And Peter keeps hammering away at this. You see, they, what Peter says, they crucified Jesus but God crowned him. What Peter says is they entombed Jesus, but God enthroned him. What Peter says is they executed Jesus, but God exalted Jesus. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's Philippians. Philippians 2, 9-11. through 11. How well do we do? Are we easily sidetracked? Have you ever gotten sidetracked? Uh, when, I, when I was a youth pastor in a church, or when I was a music pastor in a church, we had a youth pastor, Kirk Lukey, in Texas. Kirk was one of the nicest guys, but he had this bad habit. When the pastor would get on a rabbit trail, Kirk would make the little sign of a bunny, and he would do it back behind, it was behind the pews so the pastor couldn't see it. But the whole youth group that was sitting around him, about 60 or so, you could see them sitting there trying not to laugh. And all of a sudden, you would see this little bunny, and he knew that the, the pastor was chasing rabbits. He'd gotten off track. He, he'd, he'd forgotten what he, what he was preaching on, and he was doing this. And I said to Kirk, that's hilarious. I said, that's so wrong. You should not do that. And he said, you know what? I feel bad about that. I'm not going to do that anymore. A couple weeks later, the pastor was gone, and he asked me to preach. And I thought I was doing great. And I looked down, and the whole youth group is just cracked up. And I can see Kirk going, little bunny trails, because I was chasing rabbits. I'd, I'd missed the point. And I went down to Kirk, and I said, Kirk, this is a big church. I said, Kirk, did you make the sign of the rabbit? And he said, yes. And I said, was I chasing rabbits? And he said, yes. And I said, wow, I'm so sorry. Afterwards, a woman came up to me. She said, Pastor, 
You may have been chasing rabbits, but it was the rabbit the Holy Spirit wanted you to chase because I have been asking God to answer a question, and that's the question you answered this morning when you were chasing that rabbit. And I know now, she was not a believer. She said, I've been asking God if he would answer that question that I would come to faith in Jesus Christ, and she accepted Jesus Christ that day. You see, it's all about Jesus. And he can take us down a rabbit trail sometimes. But when it's all said and done, it comes back to him. What have you done with Jesus Christ? Acts 4.12 says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Point others to Jesus. When someone asks what your witness is, don't get, don't get sidetracked. Don't go down the rabbit trails. Ask the Lord to make sure that you're clear and that you point them to Jesus. And here's the third one. Ask for total commitment. Ask for total commitment. They were cut to the heart. What does that mean? It means they were convicted. They, they didn't just feel guilty. The Holy Spirit came in and, and began to work in their life. And, and do you get this? They had crucified Jesus. This crowd that he's talking to there on that day was the same crowd that's shouting just 50 days before, crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. He's not our king. He's not the Lord. He's not Messiah. The same crowd, and they're cut to the heart. And what do they say? What shall we do? What, what can we do? What are our options here? True commitment comes with repentance, and it's a deliberate change of direction in life. Do you get that? True commitment comes when, when you're going this direction, and, and God says, I want you to repent, and I want you to turn directions. I want you to go the other way, and that's what Peter called for. He says, listen, you've been going this way, and it's leading you in the wrong direction. Turn around. Come my way. Laura Wilkinson did that. Laura Wilkinson in 2000 was in the Olympics. She's a diver. She does the high platform. She'd broken her foot just three weeks before the Olympic finals, before she went to the Olympics. She'd broken her right foot, and it was so badly broken she had to wear a boot just to get up the steps to those platforms. Can you imagine climbing those ladders with a, with a broken foot and then having to take the boot off because you couldn't dive with the boot and taking the boot off with just a, 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 a bandage wrapped around this broken foot, hobbling out to the end and having to get the spring? And after they'd done the preliminary rounds, she was in eighth place. And she thought about something that she'd heard from her youth pastor. She'd gone to a Baptist church, and she'd heard her youth pastor talk to her about putting Christ first. And she said, Olympics had always been first, and, the, and getting a gold in the Olympics was my, my dream and my goal. She said, I was in eighth place. There was no chance in the world for me to win because there were just two more rounds for us to go. And as I was climbing the stairs, she said, it was as if the Lord said to me, okay, you want to give, it, give your life to me now? She said, I got to the top. She said, you can look at the tape if you want to. I took the boot off, and I knelt down. She said, I knelt down on my left knee, and everybody thought that I was adjusting the tape. And she said, I, left, I knelt down on my left knee. And as I knelt on my left knee, what I said is, Lord, you are Lord. You're God. I give my life to you. Whatever happens, you're, you have everything. I will live for you no matter what. And she stood up. And in the next two dives, she won the gold medal for the United States. She said, I would never, ever have won that gold medal except that I gave Jesus Christ everything. 
And now she goes and talks to kids and tells them not to be Olympic champions. She tells them to be champions for Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12.1 says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us throw off everything that hinders, the sin that so easily entangles. It's so easy to get into that. And the Lord says, I want you to run the race. Look at this next slide. Look at what it looks like. Run the race with perseverance. God says, I want all of you. I'll close with this. Monteo Mitchell is one of the fastest men in the United States. He's 25 years old. He's considered too old to be on an Olympic team. He pulled a groin muscle. He had all kinds of health injuries earlier this year. Monteo Mitchell went with a, a, another fellow athlete to the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and he heard the message, and it reminded him again. He grew up in a church. He'd heard the message, and he thought his running time was over, and he said to the Lord, listen, Lord, I will run for you. And as soon as he said that, a coach approached him the next day. He said, Monteo, I have seen you run before. I think you could make it to the men's four, uh, four times 400, the, the relay, the men's 1,600-meter relay. I think you could be one of the six men that we use on the team. They have some extras. And he said, I haven't run in a year. I've pulled these muscles. I'm, I'm out of training. And he says, well, all I can say is I'm a Christian. The Lord said that I'm supposed to call Monteo to see if he will run tomorrow. Monteo had not run in six months. He ran the third fastest time for the qualifiers. When they put him to another meet, he ran a faster time than that. The third time he ran, he ran the fastest he'd ever run in his life. He said, as soon as I began to run for the Lord, as soon as I put it all in the Lord's hand, he said, I don't know if I'm going to even appear in the Olympics, but I know this, God wants me in London to be his witness. Run the race. Let's pray. Father, you know each person that's here today. And Father, you know that you've laid this message on my heart because somebody needs to hear clearly that salvation is found only in one name. That's the name of Jesus Christ. That Jesus died on the cross on our behalf. He died in our place. He died for all the wrong things we've ever done. And he offers us the opportunity of coming by faith to accept him into our life. So today, Father, I believe it's all about Jesus. As you inaugurated the church and we've anticipated what you did back then, you have greater things than that today for us if we'll run the race, if we will give you everything to trust you, to love you, to live for you. Father, make us a learning church. Make us a loving church. Make us a worshiping church. Make us a, a, a witnessing church. Father, make us the church you want us to be by helping us to understand what you anticipate for us to be when we witness. We pray this in Jesus' name.